Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Go Help Yourself. It's a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less. I'm Misty Stinnett, and across from me, Lisa Linky, virtually. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm still in the closet recording, but it's a different closet. It's a closet with a light bulb. It's a closet with a little more breathing room, but let me assure you, it's as hot as the other one. How's your day going? So if you're new to the podcast, this is the podcast where we read and review a popular self-help book and we share with you the main points, the things you should remember, the things you should forget, the garbage moments, the best of, the picks, the pans. The point is we're reading the books so that you don't have to if you're too busy. Mm -hmm. Because let's be real, self-help is like what, a $13 billion industry? There's a lot out there. There's a lot of people who should not have book deals, but they do. We hope to be one of them someday. Yeah. If you love what you're hearing, buy the book and support the author. If you don't like what you're hearing, don't buy the book. It's up to you. The point is, is that we're doing this so you don't have to, and that you're going to go on getting the life-altering self-help device, self-help device, self-help advice through a device that you've been craving and, um, or that people have been begging for you to get for years. And you're finally, you finally have the time that you, that you wanted. (laughs) Yeah. Like in an escalating way. And now you have no excuse, (laughs) but to self-improve. By the way, it's May 10th. When you're listening to this, when this episode comes out, the world might look really different. So if our references are outdated, that's why people, if you don't like what you're hearing, email us. Let us know what we got wrong. Tell us we suck. Or go help yourself podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, rate, subscribe, and review. At this point, why haven't you? Lisa, you have a big big yeah i do have a big book. To die. I have a big book and we're gonna rail through it because it's too big to cover you don't have to brag about your book <laughs> okay <laughs> i read big <laughs> books and i cannot lie it is white fragility why it's so hard for white people to talk about racism by robin j d'angelo and it has uh awesome it's awesome i love it everybody should buy it uh, you should hang up right now hang up hang up the phone that you're on and order it on amazon or go to your local bookstore if you're allowed to be out and about shopping and um and buy it yeah and my big sister heather has been has been singing the praises of this book for many many months and a lot of people i know that read it were really transformed by it so i'm super excited i have not read it i have no idea i have been reading it over the uh, the course of a couple of months and we were hoping to have Heather come on, but now we are not allowed to congregate. (laughs) So, um, right. We have not figured out a way to have, um, guests on yet in a way that is sound satisfactory. Yeah. We're doing this for your ear holes. Okay. So this book was released in June of 2018 and it <laughs> debuted on the New York Times bestseller list where it remained for 85 weeks and it's currently being translated Whoa. into five languages. It's 187 pages. So it's a pretty quick read, but it's dense. It's only 187 pages. Mm-hmm. I was, for some reason, I was imagining this to be like a 400 one. Uh, no. Wow. The Kindle is $12.99, the paperback is $12.99, and Audible is $28 or one credit narrated by Amy Landon. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Robin D'Angelo. She, on her website, breaks up her About Me into three um, areas, academic, professional, and personal. So for her academic, she says, I received my PhD in multicultural education from the University of Washington in Seattle in 2004. I earned tenure at Westfield State University in Massachusetts, and currently I am affiliate associate professor of education at the University of Washington, Seattle. My area of research is in whiteness studies and critical discourse analysis, tracing how whiteness is reproduced in everyday narratives. I have numerous publications and books, and in 2011, I coined the term white fragility in an academic article which influenced the international mm. dialogue on race. Um, as a professional, she, that's amazing. Yeah, she says that she has been a consultant, educator, and facilitator for over 20 years on issues of racial and social justice. She has worked with a wide range of organizations, including private, 
nonprofit and governmental. And then here is her personal. She says, I grew up poor and white. While my class oppression has been relatively visible to me, my race privilege has not. In my efforts to uncover how race has shaped my life, I have gained deeper insight by placing race in the center of my analysis and asking how each of my other group locations have socialized me to collude with racism. In so doing, Mm. I have been able to address in greater depth my multiple locations and how they function together to hold racism in place. I now make the distinction that I grew up poor and white for my experience of poverty would have been different had I not been white. So that's from Same. her website, Robin D'Angelo. Mm-hmm. Okay. She sounds awesome. She is. We got a table of contents here. We got the introduction. <laughs> yeah, we do. We can't yeah, get we there do. from here. Then we got 12 chapters and we're going to spend most of our time. on. Oh, it's the called the introduction is we can't get there from here. That's right. Um, and then okay. we're going to spend most of our time in the front half of the book. I think that'll get us to probably about an hour. And um, the rest of the rest of the book is truly amazing. Um, we'll see where we get. And I think however much we get is going to be fantastic. So chapter one is the challenges of talking Great. to white people about racism. Chapter two is racism and white supremacy. Chapter three, racism after the civil rights movement. Chapter four, how does race shape the lives of white people? Chapter five, the good, bad binary. Chapter six, anti-blackness. Chapter seven, racial triggers for white people. Chapter eight, the result, white fragility. So she builds up seven chapters, getting us to white fragility in the concept. Chapter nine. That makes sense because I feel like there's a lot of context that you have to cover. Uh, to yeah, especially under, because fully understand it. white people can't talk about race. So she's really kind of getting you on the long path to it. Um, chapter nine, white fragility in action. Chapter 10, white fragility and the rules of engagement. Chapter 11, white women's tears. And chapter 12, where do we go from here? Um, the, there's a man named Michael Eric Dyson who wrote the foreword and he has this little paragraph that I loved. I wanted to read. It says, to be sure, like the rest of race, whiteness is a fiction. What in the jargon of the academy is termed a social construct, an agreed upon myth that has empirical grit because of its effect, not its essence. But whiteness goes even one better. It is a category of identity that is most useful when its very existence is denied. What it means to be an American is not what it means to be white, at least not exclusively or even primarily. Yeah, it's the privileged experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, And then she serves up a healthy dish of author's notes to kind of, um, I think this is her academia coming out. And I'll just uh, uh, kind of put those here uh, for you as well. She says the term identity politics refers to the focus on barriers specific groups face in their struggle for equality. The identities of those sitting at the tables of power in this country have remained remarkably similar, white, male, middle and upper class, able-bodied. The decisions made at Mm -hmm. those tables affect the lives of those not at the tables. Exclusion by those at the table doesn't depend on willful intent. We don't have to intend to exclude for the results of our actions to be exclusion. Inequity can occur simply through homogeneity. Did I say that right? You did. You fucking nailed it. If I am not aware of the barriers you face, then I won't see them, much less be motivated to remove them, nor will I be motivated to remove the barriers if they provide an advantage to which I feel entitled. Not naming the groups that face barriers only serves those who already have access. The assumption is that the access Mm -hmm. enjoyed by the controlling group is universal. And she says, this book is unapologetically rooted in identity politics. I am white and I am addressing a common white dynamic. I am mainly writing to a white audience. When I use the terms us and we, I am referring to the white collective. This usage may be jarring to white readers because we are so rarely asked to think about ourselves or fellow whites in racial terms. But rather than retreat in the face of that discomfort, we can practice building our stamina for the critical examination of white identity, a necessary antidote to white fragility. Hmm. And she does call out this inherent dilemma. She says, 
This raises another issue rooted in identity politics. In speaking as a white person to a primarily white audience, I am yet again centering white people and the white voice. She says, I have not found a way around this dilemma for as an insider, I can speak to the white experience in ways that may be harder to deny. So though I am centering the white voice, I am also using my insider status to challenge racism. That's something that um, I hear a lot is like, as people as a as part of a group or several groups right that enjoy privilege we need to use our privilege and access mm-hmm. to dismantle yeah. the systems that are there and in that might sound like a, a the systems that uphold racism and that might sound like a really heady statement or really academic and you might not really know what it means but this is such a great example if she's like hey as a white person, I will be listened to by other white people and she can use her privilege and, you know, is it easier to get her book published because she's white? I don't know, you know, but she's using that to further the conversation about racism and therefore is dismantling it from the inside. Yeah. Which is great. Um, she says that this book is also helpful for people of uh, color or people who do not identify as white. Um, it can be helpful mm. for them to understand why it's so difficult to talk to white people about racism. Um, this book looks mm. at the United States in the general context of the West. And she argues that racism is deeply complex and nuanced. And given, given this, we can never consider our learning to be complete or finished. And she yeah. she does acknowledge that using the terms white and people of color just collapses a great deal of variation and doesn't even address multiracial people. So she's just kind of right. setting the table mm-hmm. for what we can do here. All right. Introduction. Now we're to the introduction. <laughs> I already feel like I've learned a lot. I know. It's we can't get there from here. Okay. Here's this paragraph. White people in North America live in a society that is deeply separate and unequal by race. And white people are the beneficiaries of that separation and inequality. As a result, we are insulated from racial stress at the same time that we come to feel entitled to and deserving of our advantage. Given how seldom we experience racial discomfort in a society we dominate, we haven't had to build our racial stamina. Socialized into a deeply internalized sense of superiority that we either are unaware of or can never admit to ourselves, we become highly fragile in conversations about race. We consider a challenge to our racial worldviews as a challenge to our very identities as good moral people. Thus, we perceive any attempt to connect us to the system of racism as an unsettling and unfair moral offense. So Mm -hmm. she says that the mere suggestion that being white has meaning draws a range of defensive responses, including anger, fear, guilt, arguing, silence, and withdrawal. And these responses work to reinstate white equilibrium as they repel the challenge. They return our racial comfort. They maintain our dominance within the racial hierarchy. So she says, I conceptualize this process as white fragility. Though white fragility is triggered by discomfort and anxiety, it is born of superiority and entitlement. White fragility is not weakness per se. In fact, it is a powerful means of white racial control and the protection of white advantage. Whoa. Yeah. Given our racial insulation coupled with misinformation, any suggestion that we are complicit in racism is a kind of unwelcome and insulting shock to the system. If, however, I understand racism as a system into which I was socialized, I can receive feedback on my problematic racial patterns as a helpful way to support my learning and growth. One of the greatest social fears for a white person is being told that something we have just said or done is racially problematic. Yet when someone Mm -hmm. lets us know that we have done just just done such a thing, rather than respond with gratitude and relief, after all, now that we are informed, we won't do it again, we often respond with anger and denial. And such moments can be experienced as something valuable, even if temporarily painful, only after we accept that racism is unavoidable and that it is impossible to completely Mm. escape having developed problematic racial assumptions and behaviors. None. Absolutely. And she uses a lot of examples throughout her book from her 20 years as a a, a consultant and as um, a teacher. Um, I'm going to bring back something that uh, we covered untamed Glennon Doyle's memoir um, recently. And one of the one of the things she said that really struck me is that 
she's talking about women. We as women do not have, uh, we tend to not have a problem saying like, hey, I have been bombarded by misogynistic messaging, imaging, marketing thoughts my entire life. And although I am not a misogynist, someone who hates women, I have internalized misogyny. And we don't seem to have a problem with that by saying like, hey, we live in a patriarchy. And just by virtue of living in a patriarchy, it's any of those thoughts that are like, oh, I wish my thighs were smaller. or I wish, you know, X, Y, Z, I could change this about myself. Or maybe women aren't so smart, whatever those are. But when you go to that same group of women that's totally comfortable saying, I have misogynistic thoughts in me, when we say, hey, so we've grown up in a world that's very racist and received messaging and marketing and all of those things, suddenly we clam up as as white women and we're not comfortable saying, I am not racist, but I have I have racist messaging within me, right? So, and she she did it such a beautiful job of saying, look, If you walk around and there's poison being pumped into the air, you're not the one polluting, but you have poison inside of you just by virtue of breathing. It's the same with racism. Racism's everywhere. We have it in us just by virtue of existing. And it is okay. You can be a good person and not be, you know, blatantly racist and still acknowledge you have you have internalized racist thoughts. Yes. And so throughout the book, she uses these examples and she says, none of the white people whose actions I describe in this book would identify as racist. In fact, they would most likely identify as racially progressive and vehemently deny any complicity with racism. Yet all their responses illustrate white fragility and how it holds racism in place. She says, this book is intended for us, for white progressives who so often, despite our conscious intentions, make life so difficult for people of color. I believe that white progressives cause the most daily damage to people of color. White progressives can be the most difficult for people of color because to the degree that we think we have arrived, we will put our energy into making sure that others see us as having arrived. None of our energy will go into what we need to be doing for the rest of our lives, engaging in ongoing self-awareness, continuing education, relationship building, and actual anti-racist practice. White progressives do indeed uphold and perpetrate racism, but our defensiveness and certitude make it virtually impossible to explain to us how we do so. Hmm. So that's from the introduction. And now, 20 minutes in, we at chapter one, baby. (laughs) Listen, I am just so grateful that she has a way of even explaining this because what she just said is so complex. It's like I couldn't imagine sitting down and trying to unravel. Yeah, yeah everything that goes into well, this. Well, I mean, she's like the, she's like the authority oh. on this, one of the authorities on this from, from a white person perspective. Okay. So chapter one, the challenges of talking to white people about racism. I'm going to spend most of my time on this chapter. Great. Just to really kind of have us understand why, why this is. So. Well, if we can't get past a conversation, how's real change ever going to take place? So I'm glad that you're spending a lot of time on this. Thank you. She says, a critical component of cross-racial skill building is the ability to sit with the discomfort of being seen racially, of having to proceed as if our race matters, which it does. Being seen Mm -hmm. racially is a common trigger of white fragility. And thus, to build our stamina, white people must face the first challenge, naming our race. She says, I've never met a white person without an opinion on racism. (laughs) She says, we must be willing to consider that unless we have (laughs) devoted intentional and ongoing study, our opinions are necessarily uninformed and even ignorant. She says, nothing in mainstream U.S. culture gives us the information we need to have the nuanced understanding of arguably the most complex and enduring social dynamic of the last several hundred years. And yet, we can become CEOs, teachers, government officials, lawyers. I think this was my thought. She doesn't say this. Uh, Maybe she does say it. Uh, We can become CEOs, teachers, government (laughs) officials, lawyers, judges, police, and even jury members without ever discussing racism. Oh, correct. Yeah. Correct. I think the first time this really came up, other than like, you know, I grew up in small town Florida. I had one black person in my high school mm-hmm. and two Jewish people, by the way. Hey. Um, otherwise, it was all completely white people. I don't think there was a real discussion about 
racism except within my own family until I got to college. Yeah. Like no academic sort of. Well, and it's you know? not even just that, but she says social forces work quickly to stop us from talking about race. And these forces include the ideologies oh. of individualism and meritocracy, the narrow and repetitive media representations of people of color, segregations oh. in schools and neighborhoods, depictions of whiteness as the human ideal, truncated history, jokes and warnings, taboos on openly talking about race and white solidarity. So, dude, yeah. this is literally, th- literally, this is what's left out of every new age. Your thoughts are what make you like yeah. just yes. like the secret, yes. Louise Hay, Ugh. all of that stuff. Yes, it's like it's anyone, anyone who ever goes, hey, so you can make your life what you want it. Literally just think the right thoughts and it'll be. It's like only a fucking wildly privileged, a.k.a. white person could write that, right? 100%. My God. Um, Okay. She says, interrupting the forces of racism is ongoing, lifelong work because the forces conditioning us into racist frameworks are always at play. Our learning will never be finished. Yet our simplistic definition of racism as intentional acts of racial discrimination committed by immoral individuals engenders a confidence that we are not part of the problem and that our learning is thus complete. Phrases like, I was taught to treat everyone the same, or people just need to be taught to respect one another, and that begins in the home. They tend to end the discussion and the learning that could come from sustained engagement. And further, they are Mm -hmm. unconvincing to most people of color and only invalidate their experiences. She says, yeah, a significant aspect of the white script derives from our seeing ourselves as both objective and unique. To understand white fragility, we have to begin to understand why we cannot fully be either. We must understand the forces of socialization. This part, I mm. talked about this today with my mom. It was, it's Mother's Day. And so we, we brunched together over FaceTime. And this, Aww, hi, Linda. This blew my mind. Okay. So briefly, individualism holds that we are each unique and stand apart from others, even those within our social groups. And in America, our group memberships, such as race, class, and gender are irrelevant to our opportunities, right? Like that's the American ideal. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from. You, yeah. you have a chance. It's like you said, meritocracy. That's right. Right, 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 right. But we, he who works hardest that's right. or she who works hardest will make it. But we also know that it's quote, better to be young rather than old, able-bodied rather than have a disability, rich rather than poor. And this is unavoidable because we are products of our culture and not separate from it. So our understanding of ourselves is necessarily based on our comparisons with others. We have to push against our conditioning to understand how and why race groups matter, which also challenges our belief in objectivity. And so objectivity tells us that it's possible to be free of all bias. So these ideologies make it very difficult for white people to explore the collective aspects of the white experience. If group membership is relevant, then we don't see the world from a universal human perspective, but from the perspective Mm -hmm. of a particular kind of human. So in this way, both the ideologies are disrupted. So reflecting on our racial frames is challenging for many white people because we're taught to have um, a racial viewpoint to, because to be taught to have a racial viewpoint is that is to be biased. So, Unfortunately, this belief protects our biases because denying that we have them ensures that we won't change them or examine them. It's like crazy. It's like this individualism and also objectivity truly can't exist in the same space. I I am unique and individual, separate from my groups, but also I'm objective and I can see everything fine. It's it's bizarre what our culture has given us. My brain hurts. Yes. She says, for many white people, the mere title of this book will cause resistance because I am breaking a cardinal rule of individualism. I am generalizing. And she has tons Mm. of examples from her workshops and her own work life in the book that are great for demonstrating what she's talking about. And she often speaks directly to how some white people might feel about being generalized. She says, I understand that my generalizations may cause some defensiveness for white people about whom I'm generalizing, given how cherished this ideology of individualism is in our culture. Rather than use what you see is unique about yourself as an exemption from further examination, a more fruitful approach would be to ask yourself, I am white and have had X experience. How did X shape me as a result of also being white? Yes. Rather than being like, well, I'm white and I didn't experience that. Do you know what this makes me think of? And this is probably wildly inappropriate to use here, (laughs) but my, my best friend, Corey works at this 
beautiful historic inn on the island of Boca Grande Mm -hmm. um, in Florida. It's called the Gasparilla Inn. Mm -hmm. And um, I had my prom on Boca Grande Island. It's right, right next to where I grew up. And there are a ton of weddings there. And Corey was explaining to me that every couple who goes in to have their wedding there truly feels like they are having the most unique wedding they've ever, that's ever been, right? right? It's like this individual thing. But all of them have, all of them end up with the same party favors, the same idea for hashtags, the same photographer that like, she's seen so many weddings that it just sort of like, ruined the idea of of it being this like it's like simultaneously it's this really special and unique day that is exactly like a hundred thousand other special and unique days you found by culminating a pinterest board of three thousand other similar weddings because it was influenced by what we see in our culture That's right. It's like what she's saying, but maybe a a more fun example. (laughs) Exactly right. So here's what here's the tip she gives to us. She says setting aside your sense of uniqueness is a critical skill that will allow you to see the big picture of the society in which we live. Individualism will not. So for now, try to let go of your individual narrative and grapple with the collective messages we all receive as members of this larger shared culture and work to see how these messages have shaped your life rather than use some aspect of your story to excuse yourself from their impact. Can I just share an honest reaction in this moment? Please. It bums me out to think of myself as not special or not a unique individual. Yeah. And I want to do the work. I want to do this work. I want to spend you know, the rest of my life trying to dismantle racist systems and having difficult conversations. And it's going to be a shift and it's it's going to bum me out and I can still do the work. Yeah. And it it isn't that you're not a unique individual. Nobody else has your DNA. You are unique. The skills and tools that you bring and your experiences are unique in the guise of the racist culture that we live in. You are not unique. Yeah. And I, I do consider myself to be a white progressive. Yeah. So I feel like this book is like for me. Yeah. Yeah. And my friends. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The final challenge we need to address is our definition of racist. She says, I expect that white readers will have moments of discomfort reading this book. This feeling may be a sign that I've managed to unsettle the racial status quo, which is my goal. The racial status quo is comfortable for white people, and we will not move forward in race relations if we remain comfortable. The key to moving forward Mm -hmm. is what we do with our discomfort. We can use it as a door out blame the messenger or disregard the message, or we can use it as a door in by asking, why does this unsettle me? What would it mean for me if this were true? How does this lens change my understanding of racial dynamics? How can my unease help reveal the unexamined assumptions I have been making? Is it possible that because I am white, there are some racial dynamics that I can't see? And she keeps asking these questions that are great along with that line. She says to interrupt white white fragility, we need to build our capacities to sustain the discomfort of not knowing, the discomfort of, of being racially unmoored, and the discomfort of racial humility. And to increase that mm. racial stamina that counters white fragility, we must reflect on the whole of our identities, our racial group and, and our racial group identity being white in particular. And for white people, mm-hmm. this means first struggling with what it means to be white. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, okay. I have every... <laughs> uh, I enjoy every privilege possible as a white person. If I ask to speak to the owner of a store, chances are that person is of my race. There have only been less than five times in my life where I've been the only person of my race in the room. Yeah. It's very rare. That is not the same for black people, people of color, biracial people, multiracial people. I could go on and on. But if you, if I encourage everyone listening, if you're like, well, wait a second. Why is it so awesome to be white? Uh, you could look up white privilege and a list of white privileges, yeah. which I first learned about in college and they blew my mind. I didn't even realize that it was a privilege I enjoyed because it's something that was always there yeah, for me that I like took for granted. It's like when you ask a fish, how's the, how's the water? Like they don't know what water is because it's their 
It's like, what are you talking about? Yeah, there's no alternative. Yeah, it's great. I love the water. We are on chapter two, racism and white supremacy. So many of us have been taught to believe that there are distinct biological and genetic differences between races. The idea of race as a biological construct makes it easy to believe that many of the divisions we see in society are natural. But race, like gender, is socially constructed. And the differences we see with our eyes, differences like hair texture and eye color, are superficial and emerged as adaptations to geography. And under the skin, there's no true biological race. Freedom and equality regardless of religion or class status, were radical new ideas when the United States was formed. And she says, at the same time, the U.S. economy was based on the abduction and enslavement of African people, the displacement and genocide of indigenous people, and the annexation of Mexican lands. Further, the colonizers who came were not free of their own cultural conditioning. They brought with them deeply internalized patterns of domination and submission. So the tension between this noble ideology of like equality and freedom and the cruel reality of genocide, enslavement and colonization had to be reconciled. So Thomas Jefferson, who himself owned hundreds of enslaved people and others turned to science. He suggested there were natural differences between the races and asked scientists to find them. So race science was driven by these social and economic interests. Wait, that's, but that's confirmation bias. It is. Hey, can you find all the ways, I think people might be different. Can you find all the ways that they are? That's right. Or just like, that's make it up, figure it out. So race science was driven by these social and economic interests, which came to establish cultural norms and legal rulings that legitimized racism and the privileged status of those defined as white. So illustrating the power of our questions to shape the knowledge we validate, these scientists didn't even ask, are Blacks and others inferior? They asked, why are Blacks and others inferior? So in Mm -hmm. less than a century, Jefferson's suggestion of racial difference became commonly accepted as scientific, quote unquote, fact. And this idea... And yet we hold him up. I never, ever, ever have heard this about Thomas Jefferson. And instead, he is revered as this amazing founding father. Well, I do. He is called out about his slave and Sally Demings and his... uh, Oh, yeah. Yes, that. But I'm saying I'm saying what I learned in school in Florida. Oh, for sure. As a young white person. Whitewashing. It's never. Whitewashing. Yeah. So Whitewashing. the idea of racial inferiority was created to justify unequal treatment. So belief in a relation, yep. racial in, um, it, it was created to justify the treatment. It wasn't that the belief tr- triggered the unequal treatment. It was kind of like. Interesting. Right. It was, it was, it was, okay. It was a justification, uh, 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 not a belief. Yeah, because you can say, hey, um, equal rights for all humans, except we're not going to count this group as full humans. So we can go ahead and say, that's right. Yeah, it's still that's right. equal. Yeah, exactly. So she quotes Tanahisi Coates and he states, but race is the child of racism, not the father. And he means that first we exploited people for their resources, not according to how they looked. Exploitation came first, and then the ideology of unequal races to justify the exploitation followed. Oh, my God. Yeah. And she also has great summary paragraphs at the end of each chapter. And so this race is... That's a- really helpful because it sounds like she covers a lot she of really stuff. Does. So to be reminded of the main points. Yeah, like... The term white first appeared in colonial law in the late 1600s, and by 1790, people were asked to claim their race on the census, and by 1825, the perceived degrees of blood determined who would be classified as Indian. And then, in the late 1800s through the early 20th century, as waves of immigrants entered the United States, the concept of a white race was solidified. So, like, it is a social concept and construct. It's just, I, I, I... Love, love, love the way that she just pointed out underneath the skin, mm-hmm. there are no mm-hmm. biological differences. I think that's the most beautiful, beautiful way to put it. We are in chapter three, racism after the civil rights movement. Um, mm. Misty, do you know anybody who outright claims to be a racist? No, I don't think so. Mm-mm. Right. So she says, if people stop claiming to be racist anymore after the civil rights movement, why is there still racism? <laughs> Because everybody's like, I'm not a racist. Yeah, right. I'm not a racist. I'm not a racist. But then why still racism is her question. Thank you. So in this chapter, she talks about various ways that racism has adapted over time 
to continue to produce racial disparity. Um, while it exempts all white people from any involvement in or benefit from racism. So she says all systems of oppression are adaptive. They can withstand and adjust to challenges and still maintain inequality. They're deeply rooted and are not overcome with the simple passing of legislation. And in this chapter, she Mm -hmm. talks about three kinds of racism, colorblind racism, aversive racism, and cultural racism. Colorblind Mm -hmm. racism is that I don't see color. Um, cultural. I don't see color, which just denies the struggles of every group of person besides white people. That's right. Um, aversive racism uh, is I'm going to dig into aversive racism. There's also cultural race, okay. racism, which is, I think, like, I can't be racist because I married a black man or because I have African-American mm. children, something like that. Okay. So aversive racism is a manifestation of racism that well-intentioned people who see themselves as educated and progressive are more likely to exhibit. I picked this one because I felt like it would speak to our friends, our readers. I feel like our readers, our listeners, our listeners are very... And honestly, just to me personally, so please... I'd never heard of this kind of aversive racism, so I was excited to read it. Yeah. Yeah, I've never heard of it before. It exists under the surface of consciousness because it conflicts with consciously held beliefs of racial equality and justice. Aversive racism is a subtle but insidious form as aversive racists enact racism in ways that allow them to maintain a positive self-image. For example, I have lots of friends of color. I judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. And whites enact racism while maintaining a positive self-image in many ways. So here's a couple of examples um, of this. Rationalizing racial segregation as unfortunate but necessary to access quote-unquote good schools. Rationalizing that our workplaces are virtually all white because people of color just don't apply. Avoiding racial, uh, direct racial language and using racially coded terms such as urban, underprivileged, diverse, sketchy, and good neighborhoods. Denying that we have few cross-racial relationships by proclaiming how diverse our community or workplace is. And attributing inequality between whites and people of color to causes other than racism. Mm. So it each, and so there are more, more than more examples of that, but each one of those types of racism is really explored in this chapter. So to give it, that's to, amazing. To, I would really like to read that. Yes. I just sent my mom this book too. I was telling her about it and she was like, I want to read it. So she gave this example of when she was interviewing for an academic position in a state that she had not lived in before. And she had three days of interviewing. And over the three days, white people encouraged her if she were to take the job, not to buy a home in two nearby towns, especially if she had children. And while nobody openly spoke about race, she says the racial coding wasn't lost on her. She went back to her hotel that first night and checked the demographics. And sure enough, the population in those towns was 50% black. She says, starting day one of my visit, my fellow whites had communicated racial boundaries to me. Oh my God. And by the way, 50% black is ironic because, and I'm not assuming the other 50% is white, but let's say for argument's sake that it's 50% black, 50% white. We know there are many other races. That's equality. Um, yes. Although, uh, in numbers, do you see what I'm saying? Like what would look like, what would look demographically equal. Yeah. It would not be demographically representative, but it would look like half, like half and half. Right. Yeah. Correct. Correct. But if we're talking like, Hey, and, and it's, it's yeah. Yeah. She says, when you consider the moral judgment we make about people we deem as racist in our society, the need to deny our own racism, even to ourselves, makes sense. We believe we are superior at a deeply internalized level and act on this belief in the practice of our lives, but we must deny this belief to fit into society and maintain our self-identity as good and moral people. So we say those things that people have said. We do this racial coding because racist people would say, that's a black neighborhood. We would say, oh, mm-hmm. that's a neighborhood that's had some trouble. It's starting to turn, right? We would say things because we as white people. Yeah, the sort of coded. That's right. That's right. Uh-huh. racism. Anyway, that chapter dives wow. deep on all three kinds. Okay. It's so nuanced. I know, it really is. Okay, so chapter four. How does race shape the lives of white people? This chapter is fantastic. I'm just going to briefly gloss over the different ways that race shapes the lives of white people. Please. She says, we need to understand, to understand how white people have become so difficult in conversations about race. We need to understand the underlying foundation of white fragility, how being white shapes our perspectives, experiences, and responses. Our whole socialization shapes us. So 
here's, uh, I'm just going to list these off. Belonging. She says, as a white person, I was born into a culture in which I belonged racially. The experience of belonging is so natural that I do not have to think about it. The rare moments in which I don't belong racially come as a surprise, a surprise that I can either enjoy for its novelty or easily avoid if I find it unsettling. Freedom. Oh, yeah. Real quick. Real quick. Think about think about the these two different experiences. A little white girl goes down the doll aisle at the toy store. She's going to be surrounded by dolls that look like mm-hmm, her, mm-hmm. right? And able-bodied dolls, let's say. Mm-hmm. Now let's say an indigenous, a little indigenous girl or a little black girl goes down that same aisle. They're going to be surrounded by dolls that are not of their race. That's right. it's, it's just, it's, it's crazy. Um, another example is freedom from the burden of race. Because I haven't been socialized Mm -hmm. to see myself or to be seen by other whites in racial terms, I don't carry the psychic weight of race. I don't have to worry about how others feel about my race, nor do I worry that my race will be held against me. With race as a non-issue, I can focus on my work and my productivity and be seen as a team player. This is another example of the concept of whiteness as property. Whiteness has psychological Mm. advantages that translate into material returns. Um, this freedom from yep. responsibility gives me a level of racial relaxation and emotional and intelligent and intellectual space that people of color are not afforded as they move throughout their day. They don't lack these benefits just because they are members of a numerical minority because white men are a numerical minority, but raised in a culture of white they are in the United States, women outnumber men. Oh my God. I never realized that. They're just everywhere. White dudes are everywhere. Raised in a culture of white supremacy, I exude a deeply internalized assumption of racial superiority. She says, freedom of movement. I can free to move virtually mm-hmm. any space and seen as normal, neutral, or valuable. I'm just... Yeah, real quick. Mm-hmm. I, I just want to say, like, you and I could take a jog outside. Mm-hmm. In a hoodie. We could take a jog in a hoodie. Mm-hmm. We could take a jog outside. We're in whatever the fuck we want. And we are not going to be hunted down by a dad and his son in a fucking truck. That's right. And by the way, I also have freedom of movement of like, you know, I got I got a a traffic ticket a few months ago and it was very scary and unnerving, but I had no problem letting the cop know I was annoyed with him Mm -hmm. and that because he was being a real dick. Mm -hmm. But I never feared for my life. That's right. And that situation and the freedom to be like, ugh, you know, That's is right. an enormous privilege. Yeah. Um, we're just people. Um, my race is held up for the norm as humanity. Think of like specific months dedicated to other perspectives. But when we're not looking for the black or Asian perspective, we return to white writers. We return to white history, reinforcing the idea of whites as just human and people of color as particular kinds racialized of humans. Um, this allows white, mm. predominantly male writers to be seen as not having an agenda or any particular perspective, while racialized and gendered writers do. And virtually any representation of human is based on white people's norms and images, flesh-colored makeup, standard emoji, depictions of Adam and Eve, Jesus and Mary, educational models of the human body with white skin and blue eyes. Yeah. When is the last time when you go to grab a Band-Aid? Yeah, I know. When's like, it's yeah. it matches my skin. It matches your skin. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's 20 fucking 20. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to breeze through these because I want to hit a couple more chapters. Um White solidarity is the unspoken agreement among whites to protect white advantage and not cause another white person to feel racial discomfort by confronting them when they say or do something racially problematic. It requires both Mm. silence about anything that exposes the advantages of the white position and a tacit agreement to remain racially united in the protection of white supremacy. To break white solidarity Mm. is to break rank. But she says, my silence is not benign because it protects and maintains the racial hierarchy and my place within it. And each uninterrupted joke furthers the circulation of racism through the culture and the ability for the joke to circulate depends on my complicity. Mm -hmm. The good old days. As a white person, I can openly and unabashedly reminisce about the quote, good old days, romanticized recollections of the past and calls for a return to former ways are a function of white privilege. It's a hallmark of white supremacy, she says. White. Well, and also, uh, Lavia Jai and her wonderful book, I'm Judging You, <laughs> uh, which we have an episode on sometime early last year. But, um, she, you know, this concept of make America great again. It's like America was never great. Yeah. 
it's never been great. Yeah. Not, not for anyone who's not a white person. Yeah. Um, white racial innocence. Cause we're not raised to see ourselves in racial terms or to see white space as racialized space. We position ourselves innocent of race. But then why aren't people of color who grew up in segregation also innocent of race? She says, I ask mm. my readers to reflect deeply on the idea that white segregation is racially innocent. Um, because people of color are not seen mm. as racially innocent. They are expected to speak to issues of race, but must do so on white terms. And this idea that mm. racism is not a white problem enables us to sit back and let people of color take very real risks of invalidation and retaliation as they share their experiences. But we are not required to take similar cross-racial risks. This is a whole new perspective for me. Oh, great. And what you said about what you said about. um So we look at white writers as being more neutral, mm -hmm. not racially charged. We don't. I don't. I have never expected. Oh, oh. A white person to have it be their responsibility to write everything through the lens of race, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. or you know, kind of a thing. But it's like, yeah, if you have a, a black reporter, I automatically assume that it comes with the territory mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that they'll be well spoken about it. And they'll because they've experienced it yeah. their whole lives. Right. Yeah. That's new for me. Oh, good. The last here is segregated lives. Um, life in the U.S. is deeply shaped by racial segregation. And of all racial groups, whites are the most likely to choose segregation and are the group most likely, most likely to be in the social and economic position to do so. Meritocracy is what we claim, but schools are vastly different. We wouldn't allow our children to attend schools in certain conditions, but we allow others to attend those, uh, other children to attend those schools. So she says the most profound message of racial segregation may be that the absence of people of color from our lives is no real loss. Not one person who loved me, guided me, or taught me ever conveyed that segregation deprived me of anything of value. I could live my entire life without a friend or loved one of color and not see that as a diminishment of my life. Pause for a moment, she says. Oh, wow. Consider the profundity of this message. We are taught that we lose nothing of value through racial segregation. When you, when you, oh my God. when you, when you bus kids to schools, it's always kids of color who have to go to white schools. It's never white kids who have to go to black schools. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's the end of chapter yes. four. I do want to hit on chapter five, the good, bad binary, because this is this real mm -hmm. this concept that really helped me understand white fragility, um, including my yeah. own and made me so much more open. It says, um, this is the most effective adaptation of racism in recent history, the good, bad binary. So after the civil rights movement, to be a good moral person and to be complicit with racism became mutually exclusive. You could not be a good person mm. and participate in racism. Only bad people were racist. So these images of the black persecution in the South during the civil rights movement of the 60s also allowed Northern whites to position racists as always Southern. So to, uh, yeah, to accomplish this adaptation, racism first needed to be reduced to simple, isolated and extreme acts of prejudice. These acts must be intentional, mm -hmm. malicious and based on conscious dislike of someone because of race. That's what I grew up thinking that racism was. That's right. It's somebody who really goes out to Willfully hurt someone else on purpose. Yes. So while making yes. racism bad seems like a positive change, she says we have to look at how this functions in practice. So within this paradigm, mm. to suggest that I am racist is to deliver a deep moral blow, a kind of a character assassination. And having received this yeah. blow, I must defend my character. And that is where all my energy will go to deflecting the charge rather than reflecting on my behavior. And she mm -hmm. says, In this way, the good bad binary makes it nearly impossible to talk to white people about racism. If we mm -hmm. cannot discuss these dynamics or see ourselves within them, we cannot stop participating in racism. The good mm -hmm. bad binary made it effectively impossible for the average white person to understand, much less interrupt racism. And this framework is also a false dichotomy. All people hold prejudices, especially across racial lines, in a culture and society that is deeply divided by race. This simplistic yes. idea that racism is limited to individual intentional acts committed by unkind people at the root of, uh, is at the root of virtually all white defensiveness on this topic. She says, to move beyond defensiveness, we have to let go of this common belief. She says, 
Unfortunately, white fragility can only protect the problematic behavior you feel so defensive about. It does not demonstrate that you are an open person who has no problematic racial behavior. And we've seen this in practice. Someone will tell someone, hey, I feel like the comment that you made in the meeting upset, insert person of color's feelings. Person who is gets so upset, is so offended, their moral character is is attacked, they feel, they defend, they, um, they say, well, I can't, you can't say anything nowadays. So I'm just not going to say anything at all. All of their yes. energy oh, goes God. into, I've heard that argument yes. so many times. All of their energy goes into defending themselves instead of receiving and trying to work on it. It's because of this. Because we associate a racist with maybe a member of the KKK who's going to do a lynching. That's right. Not. That's right. Right. So. Right. There's colorblind statements like we know and color celebrate statements, right? Like I work in a very diverse environment, so I can't be a racist, those kind of things, along with I don't see color. Mm -hmm. She says when people Mm -hmm. say these things to her, she doesn't ask if they're true or false. She says dichotomies like the good, bad morality of racism, you'll never get an agreement. Instead, she asks, how does this statement function in this conversation? And she says they all ultimately exempt the person from any responsibility and participation of the problem. And she Mm. gives this great example of understanding that gender is a societal construct. You would never say, I identify as a woman. And because I'm married to somebody who identifies as a man, I live a gender-free life. (laughs) God, that's such a great way to put it. She says, you understand inherently that gender is a social construct. So yeah, you, you nobody goes, I don't see gender. Right. I don't see gender. Right. Nobody says that. And so for all of those statements, like, I don't see color. I don't care if you're pink, purple or po- polka dotted. She goes on to take down each of those reasons people give in each of those claims, color celebrate or colorblind to explain how they're not accurate or logical. That chapter is long and detailed, but it's super helpful. I need that chapter because I find myself, I always find it's hard for me to get past that part of a conversation. Like I'm okay saying like, hey, the joke you just told, why do you think it's funny? Why do you think that racially charged joke is funny? And I'll start to break it down. And then inevitably it's like, well, I don't see color, honey. Mm -hmm. And, And I don't know how to get past that. Well, this chapter is for you. It's for all of us. So the next chapter is anti-blackness. I'm skipping it, but it's about how all the different reactions we have as white people to race and racism, yet our inability to acknowledge it makes us irrational. And that's at the heart of white fertility. Um, Yep. I'm going to quickly cover racial triggers for white people, and then I'm going to get to uh, white fragility, and then I'm going to wrap it up, I think, because I think... Yeah. I mean, listen, I already want to read this book. So racial triggers for white people. So many white people have only encountered like a direct and sustained. um, Let me, let me rephrase the way my stress emphasis was wrong. (laughs) I said so many and that made it sound like this was a widespread thing. Let me say. Okay. So many people have only encountered a direct and sustained challenge to their racial identity (laughs) in an isolated course in college or like a workshop at work which makes it sound Correct. like fewer people. Uh, but she says, yes. even in these frameworks, there may have been coded language, urban uh, versus, or inner city versus black. Correct. Right? Mm-hmm. But they rarely mm-hmm. used whiteness or overprivileged. They would say underprivileged, but never <gasps> overprivileged. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Oh, 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 yeah. my brain is exploding open. Yeah, but she says this just reinforces the us versus them dynamic, but it's kind of problematic because then these individuals will claim, I already had a class on that. I took a workshop on that. Our our workplace has already been informed on race. Like my learning's complete. Check that off the to-do list. And so what happens is we never build up the stamina or have been called upon to build our capacity to endure racial stress. So she's mentioned this throughout the time. And so people who are not white, their entire lives have been developing this capacity to endure racial stress. By necessity. Yes, because of the culture we live in. So when we don't have the Mm -hmm. ability or the stamina, plus this good, bad binary, that's what draws out this white fragility, all these behaviors that prevent us from learning 
and the social construct and the fact that there is a real cost to acknowledging the white supremacist state. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Because learning is exhausting. Yeah. It'll make us feel so bad. Yeah. Actually acknowledging the state of the world and what other people go through is would be gutting. Yeah. It is gutting. So we're here. Chapter eight, the result, white fragility. So she starts Mm. off with a story about a workshop with a white woman named Karen, of course. And when Karen, my mom's name is Karen. (laughs) Well, when Karen, of course, gets some feedback, she says, forget it. I can't say anything right. So I won't say anything. And I said, of course, of course, you said that, Karen. Um, Of course you did, Karen. And then Robin goes on to say, as NPR's Don Gagne points out, a remarkable preponderance of white Americans believe they also experience racial prejudice. More than half of whites, 55% surveyed, say that generally speaking, they believe there is discrimination against white people in America today. Notable, however, is that though a majority of whites in the polls say discrimination against them exists, a much smaller percentage say they have actually experienced. And I remember hearing this story on NPR and losing my damned mind because it was during the election. Mm. So white people's moral objection to racism increases their resistance to acknowledging their complicity with it. So one way that whites mm-hmm. protect their positions when challenged on race is to invoke the discourse of self-defense. So though uh, through this discourse, like whites characterize themselves as victimized, slammed, blamed, and attacked. Right. And that's where we're defending. Yeah. And how, f- and by the way, how fucking selfish if, if someone is saying, Hey, something you just did was really hurtful. And I think was racist. No, and then I'm you the make victim. it about you. I'm the victim. Yes. That is, that's such a wild injustice. So she says, white fragility is a form of bullying. (gasps) She says, let me be clear. While the capacity for white people to sustain challenges to our racial positions is limited and in this way fragile, the effects of our responses are not fragile at all. They are quite powerful because they take advantage of historical and institutional power and control. We wield this power and control in whatever way is most useful in the moment to protect our positions. If we need to cry so that all the resources rush back to us and attention is diverted away from a discussion of our racism, then we will cry. She says this is a strategy most commonly employed by white middle class women. If we need to take and it silences and erases the black experience in that moment. If we need to take umbrage and respond with righteous outrage, then we will take umbrage. If we need to argue, minimize, explain, play devil's advocate, pout, tune out or withdraw to stop the challenge, then we will. White fragility functions as a form of bullying. I am going to make it so miserable for you to confront me, no matter how diplomatically you try to do so, that you will simply back off, give up, and never raise the issue again. White fragility keeps people of color in line and, quote, in their place. And in this way, it is a powerful form of white racial control. Oh, my God. And then the next chapter is white fragility in action. And that chapter outlines examples, behaviors, emotions. I think we all have a good idea of what that is, but it's great for outlining explicity. She gives in Mm. chapter 10, white fragility and the rules of engagement. Um, I'll just quickly say it. She says, (laughs) the first rule is cardinal. Rule number one, do not give me feedback on my racism under any circumstances. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But instead, yeah. she Simple. she tries to follow these guidelines. And I will say this. I think this is helpful. Number one, how, where, and when you give me feedback is irrelevant. It is the feedback I want and need. Understanding that it is hard to give, I will take it in any way I can get it. From my position of social, cultural, and institutional white power and privilege, I am perfectly safe and I can handle it. If I cannot handle it, it's on me to build my racial stamina. Number two, thank you. Hmm. And she says, but still, like, what it comes down to is this, is that people say they need to trust that you won't think I'm a racist before I can work on my racism. And she's like, you know, no, it's on us to build up our stamina and to really work on this. Um, Stopping our racist patterns must be more important than working to convince others that we don't have them. Chapter 11 is all It's bigger than us. She, um, chapter 11 is on white women's tears. It's really wonderful. Um, explains why it's so difficult. Chapter 12 is where do we go from here? Um, it's a nice thing on where to go. And that is white fragility. Why it's so hard for white people to talk about racism. Holy cow. Great job. Thank you. To Robin, the author. 
Great fucking job. I know. Thank you, Robin. Um, to everyone who uh, stuck with us, great job. We're building our stamina. Lisa, did this book need to be written? 100%. Like 100, 400 years ago. <laughs> yeah, I was just about to say that. I wish it had been written maybe the 1600s. <laughs> but women weren't um, allowed to read then, so I understand. I Well, uh, women aren't very smart. So, Lisa, what did the author get right? I think her use of examples to really kind of hit home, both through her work experience, her own personal experience. She talks about a time mm. when she had to confront this um, and, you know, time when she did it right, time when she did, did, did it not so right. Um, and her repeated explanation, in a sense, she, 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 I think she lets white people off the hook of saying like, you're not going to be good at this. Because I think it's like, if you are aware that you live in a white supremacist state, there's this expectation that like you should be good, right? This good, bad binary. I am not a racist and I should be right. good at handling this. Um, and you, you can't, you simply cannot be aware of your whiteness because you did not grow up in a, in a culture and society that taught you it. So in that sense, I like it's that new she's for like, us. having conversations like this are new for yeah. us. And I also like that she broke that good, bad binary that like, and yeah. for me, racism is like a continuum. They're acts on a continuum of racism versus this binary. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. What did she get wrong? She's an academic. So that really speaks to me. Um, it's a little heady at times, you know, just trying mm-hmm. to understand these dichotomies and these like counterintuitive principles. It can get a little difficult. Mm-hmm. So I liked being able to read it a couple of times and talk about it before I could present it because it really stuck in my mind. But kind of reading it on my yes. own, I, I think it might be a little challenging, especially if I'm also having like heart palpitations and anxiety while reading it. Oh, yeah. And do you mean um, because of racism or the global pandemic or both? I mean, and, well, just because I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a woman and I'm dumb. That tracks. What did you put into practice from this book? I immediately put into practice this good, bad binary. You stopped being, you stopped being racist. I stopped being racist. You read I'm it? done. I'm cured. Learning was done. And I and you're out. cured. <laughs> I'm done. I read white fragility. I'm fine. Um, it's what fragility. What fragility. Yeah, I, I hate people who had an H before a W. What? Where did you read what fragility? I read it at the whaling school of the North. What did you put into practice from this book? Well, uh, you know, um, my mom, I'll share what Linda was saying today. She's like, you know, I got this email from the Democrats. They're just, they just want you to click on it and then get money. And she goes, but they asked if I thought Obama would be a good Supreme Court justice. And I thought, no, because he's never really had a career as a judge. But then I thought, am I being racist? She's like, I really had to sit and think. She's like, I know he would be good at whatever he put his mind to, but I really don't think that he has a judicial experience. I was like, Hey, let me introduce you to this thing called the good, bad binary. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, and I, it's not either or. It's not yeah. either or. And also, are you making this choice about whether or not you think he'd be a good judge based on his color of his skin or his um, resume? And she was like, it has nothing to do with the color of his skin. I was like, then you get to choose whether or not you think he'd be a good Supreme Court justice. You know, like, yeah, it's, and you know, you can acknowledge that you're having this conversation with yourself because you are aware of it. She was, it was so yeah. interesting. I love her awareness. I love that she's asking those questions. Who's this book perfect for and who's it terrible for? White women. Whoa, whoa, that came out of left field. I was not expecting that. I think it's, it's perfect for white women. I think it's terrible for people who are not yet ready to acknowledge their white fragility. Um, so much so that they yeah. will get, it will really cause them so much anger, um, to read the book. I just hope that enough white people can do this to acknowledge and just start to acknowledge the benefit of living in a white supremacist culture. You know, and just to yes. just to start saying that shit out loud, I think uh, to, to be a better ally to people of color and Black and Indigenous people. Yeah, I'm really trying to work on that. It's hard. A lot more. It's a. It's look. All this stuff is complex. Like one book at a time, one conversation at a time. Mm-hmm. We're not going to be perfect when we start out. Just like anything, we're going to get better as we go. We're going to recognize it more as we go. Mm-hmm. 
you know? Yeah. Um, do you have homework for me? Speaking of which. I do. I just want you to think about a time maybe where you got some feedback if you, um, and you don't have to share about the specific thing, but just the emotions that came up like it, where, mm-hmm. what, because it's natural, right? This good, bad binary has set us mm-hmm. up that if somebody lets us know we've said something that crossed over into this realm of racism, immediately what's going to come up for us is this horrible feeling. Um, and just to, just to maybe think about a time in your life when that happened. And if you are so woke that that's never happened, think about a time where you witnessed it happen. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, one more thought I wanted to add before we end, what it reminded me of when you were covering the, the actual chapter of white fragility and how we will deflect, cry, become the victim, whatever, get irate, whatever we need to do. I forget what book this is from, but one of us covered a book on relationships about track switching. Oh yeah. So a conversation will go like this. Hey, are you cheating on me? And rather than a partner answer the question, they go, how could you ever think I would do that? Da, 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 da. And they never actually is, answer the question. Attached, was that from attached? And that was one of the behaviors? It might be from attached. Yeah, like a protest behavior or something like that. But tracks or difficult conversations maybe, but track switching, it's interesting. Once you know it's happening, it's easy to call it out. Yeah. So like, hey... Why didn't you take off time from work so that we could go to my mother's birthday, for example? And and then the other person saying like, you always think I'm such a bad person or like, well, you know what? We didn't take off for my mom's birthday. Yeah. It's like that's a totally entirely different conversation. 100%. Stay focused on the task at hand. And I think it, that definitely speaks to our lack of stamina for emotions and for disappointing other people. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, you know, this idea of this good, bad binary, especially like in high, high stakes situations like work, um, or with mm-hmm. your core friend group or with people who, you know, you might be rejected. I think it, it can feel like you are fighting for your life, right? Like that yeah. you cannot be viewed as this amoral, horrible type of person because you could be rejected. Yeah. So I, the way she, I think what she got right again, I'll just, is just putting this framework as understanding and giving me access to understanding why I may have done this in the past and how I would bungle race, you know, conversations about race. Cause how the fuck could I? I've never been forced to see myself in racial terms. Oh yeah. Because when you equate something with being a bad person, it's like if somebody came up to you and is like, Hey, I think you're a fucking horrible person that will murder someone someday. <laughs> of course you're going to go like, what? Yeah. And although that's not what's actually being said because we associate it with, yeah. Yeah. with all that stuff since the civil rights movement. Right. So thanks for being such a great listening partner on this. I loved it. Oh my God. Thank you so much. I, I, gosh, I so wish Heather could have been here for this conversation, but I know I'm going (laughs) to have many conversations with her about it. Heather's my big sister who's also read this book and, and would have been amazing to have on here. Y'all write to us, go help yourself podcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought. Let us know. I want to know anybody who has had any like real epiphanies with this and how how that went for you yeah you know was that difficult and did you ultimately like make change yeah but lisa thank you so much for this sometimes we cover trash books and sometimes we cover vital necessary perspective changing books and today was one of those days ma'am you better believe this is no she's no bruce bryans (laughs) and thank god and thank god uh and with that everybody life is life is abundant goodbye go help yourself a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less was produced by misty stinnett lisa linky and matt sav our theme song was also written by matt sav he's amazing (laughs) do you want to get in touch you do email us at go help yourself podcast at gmail.com and you know you can also find us on the social medias instagram at go help yourself podcast Twitter at GHY Podcast or check out our website, gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. And if you liked our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes to help other people discover our show. It's really the least you can do. And why don't you tell all of your friends? Bye! Bye.